Welcome to Inside the Growing Mind. This is Westminster's podcast, all about giving parents and teachers the tools and knowledge to help children grow healthy, resilient brains. I'm your host, Erin Dentman. Today, we have Westminster's president, Keith Evans, and our director of student support, Dr. Anna Moore, here to kick things off. We'll be talking today about the idea of creating a mission statement for your family, And we'll spend a few minutes discussing what student support is and how it evolved here at our school. So in this first episode, we're going to talk about some ways to bring focus to your family and what that has to do with healthy brain development. Let's get started. So Anna, let's just start off. Why should parents care about neuroscience? I think over the past several years, there's been such an explosion of knowledge in neuroscience. And if parents are able to understand and apply things we know about neurodevelopment to their parenting, they're empowered to approach their children in ways that science has shown may be more engaging, more effective, um, lead to better long-term outcomes. So I think it's a really exciting time to parent and to apply the things we're learning from science to that journey. So this research that you talk about, this goes beyond academic learning and how the brain works in that way? The brain is the center for all of it, the academic piece, the social-emotional piece, um, the ability to reflect and grow. It's all connected. When you talk about that social-emotional piece, um, you know, topics like anxiety in our teenagers and the pressures of growing up today um, have been really prevalent in the news lately, um, in parenting conversations. Is there something that's unique about growing up and parenting today? You know, I would say that the thing that is probably unique about parenting today uh, is that parents are actually subject to many of the same stressors and sources of anxiety that their kids are. And so the same uncertainties that our students uh, in schools like Westminster who have a lot of ambition and and, uh, a lot of uh, capacity and talent, uh, the same kind of stressors they're subject to, their parents are experiencing in their workplaces with economic uncertainty, with intrusion, sometimes the, the good things as well that technology offers. Uh, there are many, many parallels between the world that our parents are trying to be good moms and dads in uh, and the, the world that our students are living in. Uh, probably uh, the one that I think uh, trips up uh, many parents is that there's just a lot less consensus about what good good parenting looks like. And so um, I think that leads to a lot of confusion uh, and a lot of, of uncertainty that adds further then to the stress. I'm confident. I have a stack of books at home. I'm confident my Twitter feed, I'm probably following six different agencies that are intended to tell me how I should parent or how to be a better parent or how to raise better children. And I think this externalization of information seeking is hard. What are the things parents can do on their side of this relationship? So I think what one thing that parents uh, can do in a very productive conversation to have is really to to sit down and look at your parenting partner and ask the question, what is it we're trying to accomplish here? And if you can say that in the fewest words possible, uh, three to five or one, (laughs) then how do you align the rest of your activities as a parent and the way that your family values and norms evolve in order to accomplish that thing that you're trying to ultimately influence with your child? Understanding that there are a lot of other influences as well. And so you, you don't, inf- unfortunately, get to be in charge of everything related to your child uh, as a parent. 
But I think having clarity around what is it you're trying to do is actually a skill that parents have that they use in their professional lives and volunteer lives every single day. They just tend to, to, to lean into a different skill set when they get home at night and then they're interacting with their kids. And that skill set tends to be more amygdala-based as opposed to prefrontal cortex-based. And I would contend that, that most, uh, most parents actually have all the skills that they need to really be effective by tapping into those kind of professional skills that they've developed over time that allow them to set a course and then allow that course to align the rest of, of what they're doing. There's any number of different ways that you might uh, decide what it is that you're trying to accomplish with your child. The important thing is to decide it. I have known parents who have said, you know, the number one thing for us is to build character in our children. If the number one thing for you is to build character in your children, which I think would be a very laudable thing to do, what does that mean for the vacations that you take? What does it mean for the schools that you choose, for the way that you think about allowances, for the way that you think about family gatherings, for what you think about the kinds of topics that you discuss around the, the dining room table? That, that all of these things begin to align around what we're trying to do is build character in our children. What parents struggle with is that we live in a world where, uh, where parents hear messages around, we have to do everything for our children. They have to be good at everything. They have to, uh, they have to master everything. We have to fill their days with a variety of activities that ultimately are going to give them a, a sort of portfolio of, of skills that will allow them to go out into the world and take the next step and the next step. But what they ultimately miss is like, what is it that's the organizing principle between all that activity? What is it that was driving the choice to be involved in this as opposed to that? And I think parents uh, are uniquely the ones in children's lives that need to make that decision and need to have clarity for themselves. And they then need to let that decision influence everything else they do. This idea of, of having that type of focus as a parent really resonates with me. A group at Yale just did a study looking at children diagnosed with anxiety, and they randomly assigned half of the children to a treatment known to be effective. They went through cognitive behavioral therapy, and then they assigned the other half of the group so that the parents are the ones who had therapy. And as I listened to you talk, Keith, about this idea of a parent philosophy, I suppose, it reminds me of this study because what happened in this group is they really helped parents to become more focused in their interactions with children, less scattered, and to help things feel a little bit less chaotic. What are some ways you would recommend that parents work reflection for their families into family life? I would say one, one very practical thing that I think parents can do that is a little bit of an unconventional way of thinking about reflection is to forecast for their kids what they'd like to talk with them about. So to say in the morning, you know, when you get home tonight, I'd love to have a conversation with you about how your academics are going or about some particular issue or something like that, which actually allows then the child to have a whole day to reflect on what they might what they might want to actually say in that conversation and moves out of the, the space where parents are sort of up on the kids saying, so how was school and how did things go? And the, and the student says, fine, and <laughs> doesn't really offer very much. You've actually given, you've actually given the child a process through the day uh, that is probably much more uh, adjusted to their own capacity to explore their feelings. And I think any time that, that parents offer their children space in between the question and the answer, if that's a whole day or if it's 15 minutes, it reduces the level of, of threat the child might feel about the question. Being the parent of two boys, 
in particular. I never was, uh, never had daughters, but raising two boys, uh, that is the only way that I've ever found uh, to get them to talk, is to give them time between the question and when I'd like to actually have the discussion. And even the unexpected, so kid comes home and says, I got a 67 on a French test, instead of what did you miss or what happened? How do you feel about that? I assume as a parent, I know how my kids feel because I know how I might feel about that. But that unexpected question and looking to see how they answer that, you know, what was your favorite moment of the day instead of how was the day? I think those opportunities also, that's a novelty and our brain perks up when we see something new and a little bit different. And especially to your point, Keith, if it's not a threatening one, if it doesn't get Mm -hmm. the amygdala engaged, then again, we've left it open the rest of the brain to respond and engage. And I think Anna's example where your child comes home and says they didn't do well on a, on a test. And if you don't have clarity around what you're trying to accomplish as a parent, you tend to hop right into that child's sense of anxiety about that or your projected sense of anxiety about it or the problem that's going to create or something as opposed to, well, in the bigger picture, what we're trying to do is create a sense of responsibility for yourself as an example, which then is going to dictate and color my response to that as opposed to my response being dictated or colored by however the child's experiencing it. The child has enough experience of it <laughs> by his or herself and doesn't need you to, to do that with them. They need you to be sort of the parent who sees past whatever the temporal you know, crisis of the moment might be. You have to kind of ask why you got in this family business in the first place. Like, what was it that, that you were, you know, why, why did you have children and what did you want to contribute to the world through your children? Uh, and, and I think the answer to that does not exist anywhere except within you. You know, it, it, you can't go looking for it somewhere else. You know, for my, for my wife and myself, you know, having our kids grow up with a strong sense of their own kind of agency and independence was really important. We made choices that were different than other parents made in order to try to instill that in our kids. I think we see places in our kids now as they're older that we were very successful in some other places we maybe didn't work quite hard enough, but, uh, but at least we, we had sort of some clarity around what we wanted ultimately to do no matter what anyone else tells you, every bit of research out there suggests that you are the biggest influence in their lives. And so, you know, we can look at the media, technology, their school, their teachers, their coaches, whatever. When it all comes back to it, parents always win the influence game. They are the number one influence in kids' lives without really a close second. I tell parents all the time, even though your teenagers may be more likely to roll their eyes or not lift their eyes from their phone while you're talking to them, they're hearing you. And as importantly, they're watching you. So another thing, going back to what we were uh, talking about with how to start this conversation with a, with a parenting partner, parenting is kind of a form of leadership in, in many ways. And I think one thing that adults who are parenting kids can sit down and have a conversation about if they want to figure out how to begin to um, solve for that purpose is to think about when they have been effective as leaders in a professional volunteer opportunity, perhaps it was in school, in any number of different places, but when when did they undertake a leadership challenge that seemed to create a sense of followership, of thriving, of achieving a purpose and a goal? The, the constituent parts of that belong in parenting. This idea of a family mission statement is really for the entire family. 
It's a great tool for parents when we get into those decision-making moments. And it's a great way to provide grounding for kids and adolescents that they're really looking for from their families. For this next segment, we asked a few upper schoolers about their family's goals and how having them or not has shaped their family experience. Do you guys think your parents have goals for your family? Mm -hmm. They definitely have goals for our family. Especially for us. Yeah. Like at school. They set goals for us. Yeah, they want us to like do well in school so we have a good life. Like, but they also want us to be happy, obviously. Like my mom always helps me, like she knew I had like a really stressful year last year. So she always tries to like check in on me. Like we'll set family goals, but it'll never be like, you have to do this, it's required. She wants to have more like family time because a lot of the time we'll get home from school, go straight to our rooms and like not come out. So like one of the goals that my dad's been talking about recently is um, like coming downstairs and kind of hanging out with the family when you're not studying instead of just sitting in your room on your phone. Because like family relations are really important and like it wouldn't be good for our mental health if we just sat in our rooms on our phones. It's nice to have like good relationships with your family members, like your, your mom and your dad. And like I'm pretty close with my sister because of that. Do you feel like the things your family does now, the activities you do together, do you feel like that's leading up to what you and your parents want for you as an adult? I do. I think the things, they travel with us a lot for our games, and so I think that the support that they show us is really helping us know, giving us, it's giving us a good example for how we should be toward our families when we're older. What does it feel like to have your parents involved in helping you with your goal setting and goal reaching process? I think it's really helpful for me at least because sometimes I struggle with seeing what I need to do and making a plan myself. But I think having someone there to help you make your goals is really useful because sometimes you can't do it yourself. What do you think your parents want to see for you and your siblings when you're adults? I think they just want to see us have jobs that make us happy, not necessarily that make us the most money or something like that, and that we have a good family we love and support. I love how you guys have brought up that it's particular to your certain family. It's particular to your certain values. What ultimately is the connection between the work we're doing here to holistically support all of our students and the work that parents do at home with their individual children day in and day out with the choices that they make? I think all of this is happening in partnership. Under the most ideal circumstances, this is working in partnership. As Keith noted earlier, parents are the single most influential people in their child's life. That's the fact. Their children also spend a lot of time on this campus, surrounded by a lot of other adults who are able to be positive, good influences in their lives. So to me, this whole conversation is one. It is happening in partnership with parents, with feedback from parents, partnership with the school, feedback from the school. And the intent, I think all of us would say we're clearly aligned in that we want our graduates to be empowered young people who are capable to go out and change the world. And that means they need this balance, this perspective, these tools. We're very much about a proactive, holistic sense of care and not a reactive fixing a problem orientation. Let's talk a little bit about how at Westminster, we've designed our student support program for our particular student body and our particular values. 
So I think we, we begin with the idea that our kids aren't like other kids, right? We have a very unique student body. We, we intend it to be that way. We think it's what, uh, what really makes the school unique, that we do collect a particular kind of very, very bright, curious, motivated student. Those students are looking for a challenge, and we try to give them that challenge. But we also recognize that as, as our students are growing up, uh, and, and we're providing that kind of on the one side, our, our kids aren't always highly skilled at an early age in how to sort of regulate the challenge and how to adapt to it and how to determine what kind of an appropriate level of challenge is versus what for them typically is too much challenge as opposed to too little. We're trying to create a sense of, of leadership, an ethos around compassion and service to others, and a sense in which they're bringing the, the potential of their talents to bear for the good of the world. We align everything we do to that, and uh, we align student support to it as well. And Anna, when we talk about like resilience when it comes to challenges, some of that is just the time that it takes to develop that, correct, biologically? Absolutely. We have worked hard to infuse an appreciation of that neurodevelopmental arc into the work. Even if you look at engaging children in leadership opportunities. In pre-first, that looks one way. By senior year, it looks very different. We have students traveling the world, engaging in leadership, but they have been practicing that skill set and walking towards that since they practice holding doors open for classmates as first graders. Even our efforts around autonomy um, and self-directed learning is something that follows that arc of neurodevelopmental appropriateness. And it's ongoing because as the neuroscience continues to advance, we will continue to absorb that and understand how to apply it to this community and to these students. And we've talked about, you know, with the family mission statement and the pressures of parenting, that so much of parenting and so much of education is in those everyday routine choices. So much of making smart choices in that is not waiting until the crisis moment. So what are some of those everyday routine things that we do here on campus that are designed to support students and their whole brains, whether they realize that or not? I think there are many. One immediate example that comes to mind, I've got a friend who has a sixth grader at Westminster who didn't make the play. Took a huge risk, which is something we encourage our students to do. Try something new, make yourself a little bit vulnerable. Immediately though, that child was counseled to go back and, and join the tech crew, staying engaged in the performing arts, which is what she wanted. And so that idea of that resilience, that opportunity to, to bounce back is something that our coaches, our faculty sponsors, our teachers work on in classrooms. It's building in time for reflection, the metacognitive work of learning, actually going through test corrections so from a more academic perspective, in an incredibly thoughtful way and talking with students about why those test corrections are happening. We also have built in opportunities here for students to give feedback to students. And whether that's through an organization like Active Minds, where we have student leaders working to educate our whole community about mental health, or whether it's varsity athletes who are actively engaging with middle school athletes through tryouts or competition. I would add to that that I think one of the things that we've really worked hard at is to make sure that everyone who is here has student support in their job description. 
that there's no sense in which someone is just a coach or just a math teacher or just works for the admission office or any of those kinds of things. There are 550 adults on this campus who understands that an aspect and an important aspect of their work is thinking about the, the wellness, the emotional health, the psychological well-being of, of our students. And they are all eyes and ears, uh, even if they aren't technically part of the counseling staff or technically an advisor or something like that, that might might bear just a little bit more of that responsibility. And that's a pretty powerful network. All of this conversation, the science, the research, our lived experience has shaped student support at Westminster. Across all of the divisions, we have regular gatherings of an interdisciplinary team of adults who connect with students across a host of means. We have a school nurse, we have a counselor, we have folks who are deeply engaged in learning and understanding how the brain learns. Um, We might have a dean or a chaplain. And this group is able to gather and talk about how we see the students doing. Big picture, but also if there are kids who may be in crisis or on the edge of something where perhaps they need a little bit more support. The thinking behind that reflects both our deep belief that every adult who works at Westminster is part of student support, and also the neuroscience behind our understanding that you have to engage every facet of a student to help them reach their fullest potential. When you're trying to get through a curriculum and make sure those kids do know C equals 2 pi R, it's a trade-off to have to take time to talk about how was the day, or do we want to take a moment and get a little bit centered before we take this test, or talk to me about how late play practice went last night and and how you're feeling about that. What we know is that trade-off is worth it, it's worthwhile in terms of actually maximizing learning, although at the surface that may appear counterintuitive. Well, if we're in the potential realization business, if we are in the business of helping students to uh, make the very most of their talents, and if we're in the business of creating a ripple effect out of the school, out into the world to change the world, we are not going to do it by only focusing on academics or only focusing on becoming a great violin player or a star quarterback or a great volleyball player or something like that. Any reasonable look at who is out there changing the world includes human beings who have balanced lives and who have vision and who are other focused. And in order to do that, you have to have a, a sense of psychological and emotional health yourself. And so it is, it is not a sort of add-on to our mission, it is core to the mission, and it, and it underlies every other thing we're trying to do in terms of, of making sure that, that uh, these really, really incredible kids we have make the most of the, of the gifts that they come to us with, and ultimately that all of us look at them someday and, we made, and say we made the world a better place because of, of this school. So I hope this idea we've talked about today of the family mission statement, I hope that inspires some of our parents to sit down and think about what that might be for their own families. I know it's certainly inspired me. For parents who are interested in reading more about this idea or are trying to gain this clarity into their goals for their families, what are some resources you guys might recommend? Where I think there are a lot of a lot of great books, and I'm going to actually rely on Anna to, to list most of them, I'm actually more inclined to point, point parents back to those things that gave them clarity for themselves. One way that, uh, that parents can find the clarity and ultimately sort of go through that centering and aligning kind of process with uh, the way that they're um, parenting their kids is actually to lean more into the things that have been meaningful to them about how they found their own sort of way through life. Something they learned in a philosophy class or something they learned from a faith community. 
In other cases, they might have learned it from the Harvard Business Review. You know, there's a lot of different places that people have learned about how to be successful in terms of enacting a purpose in, in their work uh, and in their professional lives. Take that same way of thinking and apply it to how I'm thinking about being a parent and then allow that to begin to, to influence both those small around the kitchen table kind of interactions, some of the bigger decisions about where we're going to go on vacation or how we're going to spend money or what neighborhood we're going to live in or any number of different things. Well, there's the theme of reflection again, right? <laughs> Reflecting, yeah. it's, it's mm -hmm. critical. I will offer two books. These are, I'll harken back to my neuroscience roots here. I really enjoy Brain Rules by John Medina. Super easy to read. It's sort of a take to the pool and have your lemonade and you can read that book. Um, and then one that's got a little more peer-reviewed science in it, but is also very digestible, is Francis Jensen's book, The Teenage Brain. Um, but both have some pretty concrete ideas for parents backed by science. Keith, Anna, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Erin. It's a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah. And listeners, thanks for listening to the first episode of Inside the Growing Mind. We're looking forward to bringing you more content about topics like where anxiety comes from and how to help your kids deal with it, or the role of spirituality in healthy brain development. You've been listening to Inside the Growing Mind, Westminster's podcast all about giving parents and teachers the tools and knowledge to help children grow healthy, resilient brains. You can find us online at westminster.net slash podcast, where you can see our show notes, including links to those resources we just talked about. Thanks so much.